The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, politics, very bad opinions, disturbing sexual imagery, and Christopher Pine. Wednesday, the 6th of July, 2022. Happy New Financial New Year, New Year Financial. The ABC has just celebrated its 90th birthday, but it's the reaction to that which has triggered some thoughts. Long thoughts, ranty thoughts. In this episode, we look at the media and political myths about Labor. Labor can't manage money. We cross to senior Liberal Karen Andrews for some answers. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And former senior Liberal Christopher Pine sums up how we all feel. Oh, fuck. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm narrative of tolerance and shame. Well, since I last spoke to you, uh, dear listener, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation uh, celebrated its 90th birthday. Yes, the ABC was founded on the 1st of July, 1932, and who better to comment on that milestone than Sky News host Chris Kenny? Now, there's a big birthday happening in Australia tomorrow. The ABC, the national broadcaster, turns 90 years old tomorrow, first broadcasting in July 1932. And over at Arty, they're already celebrating. Yeah, it's a good clip. I've seen the full thing. It's typical feel-good stuff. But uh, kind of typical of the ABC, though. They're big on diversity, but basically showing Australia as Sydney and The Rock. There's nothing in between. Forget the suburbs, the regions, the other cities, and forget about a diversity of ideas. You'll start to hear more soon about a documentary I'm making marking the ABC's anniversary. But mark my words, for all its faults and the need for improvement, it's a great national institution. We'll always need a national public broadcaster of one kind or another. So congratulations to the ABC on 90 years of broadcasting from and across this vast and wonderful continent. Ah, Mr Kenny, such sincerity there. I've actually uh, been on the radio with Chris Kenny live uh, a while ago now, back in June 2011, good heavens, 11 years ago, and it was on LBC, the British talk radio station. I think LBC stands for, or at least originally stood for, London's Big Conversation, but I'm pretty sure it's a a national uh, talk station now. Uh, Now, their evening host at the time was Ian Dale, uh, who was a former or is a former, tense, you see, former already means past, so he is former now, but he wasn't former then, Conservative Party candidate. He didn't win, uh, but he was the first openly gay Tory candidate uh, ever. Apparently no gay candidates ever before in the Tory party. Um, 
And because uh, this was going to be the evening in the UK, we went live from Sydney at I think 6 o'clock in the morning. I remember it was a 5am call anyway to be there um, at, a, at a studio in uh, downtown Sydney. Now, Chris Kenny was there, as I say. You must remember uh, he was Alexander Downer's chief of staff, the former foreign minister, and later Malcolm Turnbull's chief of staff. He's a columnist at The Australian. Uh, he's now on Sky News Australia, all of that. And as we all know, a man who most definitely does not fuck dogs. Chris Kenny was there. And although also Arthur Sinodinus. Now, Arthur Sinodinus was John Howard's chief of staff when he was prime minister. And then after Howard lost the 2007 election, uh, Sinodinus worked for both Goldman Sachs and National Australia Bank uh, before scoring himself a free Senate spot. Uh, and now he's Australia's ambassador to the United States. So there were three Tories <laughs> and me. A strange little grouping. Now, Ian Dale had been in Australia um, for an event in Canberra, the Microsoft Politics and Technology Forum. That was actually a thing uh, where Microsoft's Australia uh, Australian office had a kind of think tanky sort of day about politics and, and, and the internet. And Indale at the time was one of the UK's uh, leading political bloggers, and he still writes about politics, as well as still being on LBC on the radio. And I'd been talking at this event, I can't remember whether I was on a panel or in the, in the, in the audience, I was on the panel one year, certainly. And we, we, you know, we were talking Twitter and blogging and things. Indale and I had some conversations. He figured... I guess, that I'd have something to say on the radio about this uh, and politics in Australia. So I found myself, six o'clock in the morning, um, with three other Tories in a radio studio, and I remember getting very annoyed, as you might imagine. Um, one thing I, I remember distinctly is that the, the topic came up of dealing with illegal immigration, because this was a thing that the UK had to face then and now. What they really meant, of course, was refugees. And they kept referring to them as illegals. And I kept, well, just trying to correct them each time, saying it's not illegal. I eventually got a little hand signal to say, shh, you know, move on. You've said it. Um, I've, I found it hilarious then, and I find it hilarious now, that someone like Chris Kenny, who's, who's clearly intelligent, you don't have those sorts of jobs if you're dumb, but he now spends his entire life just spouting political talking points for his side of politics or his employer's side of politics, probably. Um and, and he complains about bias at the ABC and yet you look at Sky News Australia and go, you're, you're literally doing nothing but your talking points, program after program, and he goes on and on about the ABC. Uh, indeed, according to Wikipedia, quote, Kenny has been a vocal critic for ABC expansionism and alleged bias. The expansionism, by the way, that just means, oh, the ABC is, is, is going on to the internet and has, has more channels and stuff. How dare they? Because they cut into the profits of commercial broadcasters, apparently. Although there's nothing stopping commercial broadcasters putting on the same kind of programs if they think it's profitable, but we... Oh. 
Strange logic. Um, and uh, the other thing Wikipedia says about them, uh, about Kenny, rather, is that in 2020, he referred to the Australian public broadcasters, the ABC and SBS, as, quote, enemies of the people. Fucking hell. I assume he just faces himself in the mirror each morning because he's just paid very, very well to be a sock puppet. Arthur, Arthur Sinodinus, by the way, um, he was very well regarded as uh, John Howard's chief of staff by all accounts. Again, in, an intelligent man. Um, what's sad, though, is that later – and, okay, again, I will – I will read this verbatim from uh, Wikipedia under legal advice. On 19 March 2014, Sinodinus stood aside from his role as Assistant Treasurer, that is, of the Australian Government, prior to giving evidence as a witness before New South Wales's uh, Independent Commission Against Corruption, ICAC. During the inquiry, Sinodinus advised he was unaware of a $74,000 donation made to the Liberal Party by Australian Water Holdings, despite being Deputy Chairman on a $200,000 salary. Uh, as an aside, this ICAC inquiry, Operation Credo, uh, was looking uh, for or at connections between Australian water holdings and members of uh, the Obeid family. Uh, Eddie Obeid uh, being, of course, in jail for corruption for a, a range of things. Anyway, Wikipedia continues... At the time of the payment, Sinodinus was also treasurer of the Liberal Party. Uh, he resigned as assistant treasurer of Parliament and was succeeded by Josh Frydenberg as assistant treasurer. We know that Frydenberg then became treasurer. And I will stress, as Wikipedia says, ICAC eventually made no adverse findings against Sinodinus. Okay, so let's be clear about that. Anyway, that was a couple of years uh, after we did the radio and by then... Arthur Sinodinus's memory had gone, which, as I say, is very sad. I mean, he said words to the effect of, I don't recall, rather a lot of times before ICAC. And, and ah, that is really sad because I only I met him only a couple of years beforehand. And at that time, he could recall a great many things and spoke about them intelligently. And, of course, now he's ambassador to the United States, so I, I guess his memory has returned. Although, as ambassador, he has uh, the embassy staff to remind him of things like who he's talking to and uh, facts, those sorts of things. As uh, regular listeners will know, and, and if you're not a regular listener, welcome. As I say, it's just good to have some new people. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Uh, regular listeners uh, will know uh, that I get annoyed at simplistic commentary on the media. You know, the, on one hand, on the one hand, there's Murdoch is evil. If only Murdoch could be stopped. Royal Commission now, or it's the ABC is all greens and lefties. And oh dear God, it's. <sighs> Isn't it so much easier to have cartoon characters to rail against than actually thinking about the complexity of the media landscape? But that said, 
I was reminded recently that former Prime Minister and former balloon head, now amateur garden gnome Kevin Rudd, has been talking recently about his relationship with the media uh, when he was Prime Minister and in particular the Murdoch media. In my recollection, what was probably the most problematic relationship uh, in that first six months period was um, the uh, Australian and the expectation which had been created during the previous Howard government that the government of the day would uh, spoon-feed Murdoch's Australian in order to set the agenda each week. In fact, what the then editor of The Australian said to me as Prime Minister was, uh, along these lines, the way it works is, of a Sunday night before Cabinet on a Monday, the um, Prime Minister's office uh, would uh, brief out to the Australian senior correspondent what was... um, major on the cabinet agenda for the forthcoming week. We, the Australian, would then set the agenda for the week. Uh, That suits us fine and dandy. And by implication, then, if you continue to play the game, then um, you won't have a huge problem from us. Uh, Both myself and my own staff found this a pretty obnoxious presentation, and we uh, declined. That grab is uh, from the 7am podcast uh, the other day. And what I found interesting about this this episode is that Rudd kept emphasising those words, play the game. Certainly I remember the occasion barely six months into office for us when literally the editor of The Australian rang up and said, unless you play the game and begin saying the sorts of things that we expect of you, uh, then we're going to turn on you. And I don't expect the listeners to this podcast to remember, but they then ran, because we refused and declined to play the game, Um, They then ran a front-page screaming uh, headline along the lines of chaos, Captain Chaos and dysfunctionality. In other words, they were seeking to establish a a message and a meme about the government in its earliest uh, stages and certainly about my prime ministership and leadership of the government, uh, which was designed not just to damage, um, but which was designed to uh, become a uh, organising principle about their subsequent coverage and to bleed that out into the national media conversation. Kevin Rudd uh, wrote a a whole piece in the Saturday paper that goes into much more detail. It's worth reading, and I I quite like one line in it, that the editor of The Australian, Chris Mitchell, as it was then, was, quote, incandescent with rage at my refusal to provide cabinet leaks in deference to his self-defined position at the centre of the political universe uh, and therefore, you know, enabling him to set the week's political agenda. I mean, the thing is, he did. Chris Mitchell did set the agenda. The Australian did and it still does. And that's how the news cycle used to go. And it still does. Morning newspapers were written overnight. They had all of the the stuff. Remember back in the day, it was what the Sydney Morning Herald used to call the rivers of gold in pre-internet days. All of that classified advertising coming in, which meant newspapers had the most journalists and they were on paper, so people believed them. And so in the morning, the radio producers and presenters would have all of the newspapers spread out in front of them and then ask each other, well, what should we talk about? What are the issues of the day as defined in the newspapers as they're reading and as the the listeners at home are reading over their, their 
wheat bix and muesli. And so the producers would call politicians and other people for comment. And then as the morning progressed, the talkback callers would, would, would start phoning in with their views. And while that was happening during the day, the television crews would be out getting politicians to basically say the same things as they'd sit on the radio, but with a camera in front of them, and then making little four-minute films to to show on the current affair shows at night. Uh, and then they'd also make longer versions, longer little films uh, for the late evening news and current affairs programs. Now, morning TV changed that a bit because the politicians could could be both on the TV and the radio. You get a crew out to their house or a nearby park or whatever. Uh, and now, of course, the rolling 24-7 news cycle just means that this little hamster wheel spins a bit faster. But despite the loss of so much uh, revenue for the newspapers, they still are the largest operations uh, around and many people still get their, their news uh, from newspapers and many people uh, in the media still imagine that the newspapers uh, set that agenda. Now, at this point, I'd like to introduce the word narrative. And to explain narrative, we we turn to that fabulous uh, documentary of 1990s news production, (laughs) Frontline, the satire from Working Dog Productions. There's one episode, for example, uh, where a woman was lost in the desert for five weeks, right? And then miraculously she was found to have survived despite despite not having any supplies with her. She gets dubbed the the Desert Angel. Now, of course, Frontline want to talk to her, but she's hired an agent, celebrity agent Harry M. Miller, and now she wants $50,000 for an interview. I don't know, it's a lot of money. She's good. Desert Angel, she's mm-hmm. fantastic. I'm just saying that you can turn anyone into good media fodder. Look at yourself, playing door cricket. Yeah. Well, if you went missing in the desert tomorrow, you'd be an aspiring sports star, cut off on the verge of national selection. Been to an op shop? Yeah. Right, uh, community-minded, uh, humanitarian who gave of himself. <laughs> uh, your dad's got superannuation. Uh, yeah. Heir to a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think current affairs is quite that cynical, mate. I'm going to my story 50 grand, that's for sure. Only one problem. You're <laughs> as ugly as sin. Oh, thank you. And that's, nice. that's the one thing you can't fudge, although we managed to do it once. We had yeah. this girl, she died, right? Had it all, but ugly as a cow. So we, oh. we cut a photo of this, of this model, right? At a clear. We said, that's it. it. Two days before someone picked it up. Really? No way. We've lost her. What? Current affair. How much? 75 grand. We're going to get crushed. money. Just because Mr. Miller does not give us the right for an interview does not mean we can't do a story. We're going to spoil it. You bet your ass. Okay, people, we want a story on the Desert Angel tonight. Right? Another angle. Now, we can't interview her and we can't get near her. Maybe the angel has a darker side. Does she have a darker side? I'd work, a school captain, consider becoming a nun. We know she's got a boring song. <laughs> Nothing about tabletop dancing. Why, you hey, come on, come on, we're on to something. You know, when you think about it, five weeks in 40 degree heat, no supplies, 
Does that sound sus to you? It sounds sus to me. Sounds real. Sure, Harry. So we do a James Scott on it. We can't have a go at her. We don't have to. We get someone else to do that. Grab an expert. Get him to ask a few pertinent, if somewhat ambiguous <laughs> questions. I'm hearing what religion is she? Latter-day Saints. Ooh, very good. We canonised it 20 minutes ago. Hey, that was before we heard about the shonky stuff. Oh, now we're finding out about the real Desert Angel. Cut a promo. Look, this is disgusting. Yeah. We haven't done the story yet. When has that stopped us? Tonight on Frontline. Mm-hmm. Growing doubts. Growing doubts over Aussie aid worker, some actuality, and then... Desert Angel or Desert Devil. Beautiful. That's my girl. Thank you. <laughs> That that episode is uh, titled The Desert Angel. That's Frontline Series 1, Episode 2. The narrative, right? You create the narrative and then you choose the information to support your narrative. It happens in every news story. Whether it's as cynical as that, um, well, that varies. Whether people do it as consciously as that, yeah, that varies too. In another episode of Frontline, um, it's about a statistician who's written an 800-page book with all sorts of social statistics, right? Pretty dry stuff. But there's one small section where he has statistics on intelligence and, well, that gets the tabloid treatment. The stats are just the usual stuff about non-whites having lower IQs than, than white people because basically... IQ tests are really quite racist when you look at the kinds of questions. Non-whites have fewer opportunities for education, poorer health, etc. So it's the racist inequality and racist testing that produces that result. You know that. I know that. But on Frontline, they make this poor media-naive bloke into a racist. He's saying that, you know, ethnics are, are dumb and his life becomes hell and it continues for days. We're going to leave this poor man alone? No. We destroyed him last night. What more can be done? He can handle some controversy until it dies down. How can it die down if we keep feeding it? Sam, did you call for me? Oh, I'm just getting measured up for the wetsuit. Feeding it? What's the feeding it? Bit? Oh, it's about this racist professor. Emma reckons we're feeding the controversy. Feeding it? Oh, we're feeding it? Yeah. Let me take over here, Sam. There's a bit of history to this bleeding hard stuff. <laughs> Emma, have you read the book? Yes. Well, I haven't, so I'm still objective. Do you honestly think we cause this controversy? Like we, we sit down at a whiteboard and we map it all out? And then they cut to the next shot, which is two people by the whiteboard. We'll get the ethnic groups to attack him today. Tomorrow the government's response. They can, uh, they can spot a populist cause from miles off. Thursday we get other scientists' anger, his own peers kind of thing. Right. Friday... His funeral? That was last night. Now we're just dancing on his grave. That's from Frontline uh, Series 2, Episode 3, Heroes and Villains. Um, if you haven't seen Frontline, I, anyone interested in the media really should watch it. Uh, here in Australia, it's currently available on Netflix and Stan. If you're not in Australia, you'll have to hunt around for it, I'm afraid. Um... Fabulous stuff, frontline. As it happens, I've produced talk shows uh, like this, radio, not TV, but the process is much the same. Uh, and I was at the ABC, not commercial tabloid media, so it was slightly less cynical, but still, if 
there was a big story that we decided to follow, we'd be at the the whiteboard, we'd map out the subtopics that we'd hit each day and work out who we'd talk to to move the story forward, as the phrase goes. This is a term of art, moving the story forward, as in building on the narrative. So where am I going with this? Um, I've, I've said a number of times before, as you know, that the, the news is manufactured. There are factories that make news widgets. You know, they a, a television factory assembles little news widgets into the evening news bulletin. It has a certain structure, so the, the widgets are designed to fit into the slots made for them. Uh, the agenda is manufactured, and as uh, I've just explained, controversy is manufactured. This morning, uh, no, last night on on Twitter, uh, Possum Comitatus, uh, you know, politics on the Twitter, said journalists get a lot of shit and a lot of it is deserved because they don't know how to make guillotines for their editors. I quite like that. But when their job is to report politics and one side says solar panels make you gay, how the fuck can you deal with that nonsense in your lane? If you report it, you look like an idiot enabling malicious idiots. If you ignore it, you're ignoring the statements of an alternative government. If you treat it like the idiocy it is, half the media owners and their lickspittles will black flag your career. And it does seem that political journalism comes down to that. We've, we've seen how some senior political journalists are having a bit of a sulk because Anthony Albanese isn't leaking them stuff, for example. In response to uh, Possum's comments there, Andrew Elder uh, on Twitter, who has has been someone who's criticised for some time the structure of the Canberra Press Gallery and so on, he said what's being criticised here is, is laziness. First, tell us about solar panels. If someone says solar panels make you gay, it's it's so far down in the story that the context helps you set it aside. The statement itself is not the story. It never was and never will be. I agree. Zooming right out, as I say, news is a manufactured item. You make the widgets. If there's room in your news production, whether it's the front page of a newspaper or the you know, of a website or whatever, in what universe is a daft comment by someone, whatever their status, how is that the most important thing to report that day? Of all the myriad things that have happened, why are you picking that one? Is it the most important or is it just, you know, the most amusing or the whatever? I mean, and it's lazy copy-paste journalism. I, I... prefer in my writing to do slow news, analysis, um, something with a bit more depth, longer stories. But I must admit, the occasional commission I get to report what the politicians said, uh, and I sometimes do that because, you know, regular journalists are sick or they're overloaded or whatever, so yeah, oh yeah, just, just do a quick news story on this, quick straight news story. It's piss easy money. You just copy and paste the juiciest sound bites from the transcript and 
the transcript can be semi-automated now too because computers, and then you copy-paste some boilerplate around it, right? So you put in the quote and then type, comma, said Susan Smith, Minister for Waffle Lions in Canberra this morning. Done, press send, send the invoice. In the context of all this, and this is this is becoming a bit of a, a media studies lecture, but I'm uh, stay with me. There was a piece in the conversation the other day with the headline: "A century-old double standard." Like Labor leaders before him, Albanese is being told he can't manage money. This is by Alex Milmau, who's a senior fellow at the Federation University in Ballarat. I must find out more about. What the fuck that is? Anyway, he wrote that incoming Labor Prime Ministers have invariably faced immediate and serious economic challenges, some of them bequeathed by conservative governments that styled themselves as superior economic managers. In 1929, for example, and I didn't know this, Labor leader James Scullin uh, came into government 12 days before the Wall Street crash began that set off the Great Depression. Oh, you can't manage money, mate. The Whitlam government came into power just as the the long post-war boom was ending. And then within a year, uh, there was the 1973 oil price hike. Uh, the Middle East oil producing cartel had just zoomed up inflation by massively increasing the price of oil. Then there was unemployment, social programs that Labor had set up suddenly They didn't have the money for it. Oh, Labor can't manage money. Similar thing happened in 83. Uh, Hawke government came in and then was told by the Treasury Secretary, oh, yeah, the budget deficit, yeah, it's a lot lot more than what John Howard said it was. Sorry. And then do you remember this one from, from 2019? Labor can't manage money. They've broken the bank every time they've been in government. When our economy was weakened by Rudd and Gillard, Labor kept taking your money, spending it, and racking up $240 billion in deficits. Over a billion a month in debt interest that we're still paying. Just when the Liberals are turning it around. Don't let Labor go for broke again. Labor, it's the bill Australia can't afford. Authorised by Ahurst, Liberal Party of Australia, Canberra. Of course, since then, here in 2022, Labor is taking the reins when after nine years of the coalition, the debt and deficit disaster is worse than ever. And, of course, this will be Labor's fault somehow. War in Ukraine, figures fudged, inflation going up. Alex Milmau continues uh, to say, Labor governments are perceived to be poor economic managers, regardless of what circumstances require them to do. Uh, compared to coalition governments who are supposedly superior regardless of what circumstances require them to do. And people continue to believe this despite the facts and in part that's because many political journalists themselves believe the myth because they keep repeating it and the politicians keep repeating it because, dear listener, it's the narrative. Still with us? Yeah, that was a bit of a rant, wasn't it? 
Okay, let's let's see if we can move a little faster now. Uh, housekeeping quickly. Uh, next episode coming up just in a couple of days will be with Claire Connolly. Uh, she's a researcher, a freelance journalist, and a policy fellow at the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. I have really been enjoying her recent work for the Saturday paper, though she does write elsewhere, uh, about housing, economic inequality, public health, all of those those public policy issues. Um, if you're a supporter with trigger words or a conversation topic for that episode, you'll have to be really quick because we're recording uh, just after Thursday lunchtime, which is less than 24 hours away as I record this Uh, We've got a lot to talk about anyway. Uh, We'll try and make that um, not a completely heavy topic, but um, some interesting stories she has. And then next week, it's the return of satirist Mark Humphreys. So that should lighten the mood a bit. You know know who Mark Humphreys is. He's been on the pod a few times before. He's on the TV, you know, and stuff like that. Um, If you have trigger words uh, or a conversation topic for Mark Humphreys next week, please get them to me uh, by midday Australian Eastern Standard Time next Thursday the 14th of July, please. So you've got a week to do that. Thank you this episode to the generous listeners who uh, make this podcast possible. For this episode in particular, Katrina Jetty, thank you very much. She has already sent in a trigger uh, trigger word for Claire, so that'll be fun. Uh, and to Sebastian Tauchman, um, whose Edict 01 Flat White Annual subscription came up for renewal. That was lovely. So thanks to both of you. And thanks also to all the people who pledged their support to the 9pm Winter Series 2022, uh, which is making those special guest episodes possible. If you would like to uh, join those those lovely people in supporting the podcast, please, uh, please go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip. That's the 9pmedict.com slash tip. Um, it would be lovely if you did so. Thank you very much. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. In many episodes of this podcast, uh, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking, Uh, sometimes sarcastically. And I've got four to tell you about this time. First one goes to the Baltimore Police Department for this. If you couldn't quite make that out over the noise of the helicopter, that was the helicopter. Quote, this is the Baltimore City Police Department helicopter unit. Please exit the swimming pool. There is no lifeguard on duty. For your safety, exit the swimming pool. Now, this was a a swimming pool. It was the evening. 
no lifeguards on duty. There were some kids in the pool as uh, as Jason, who tweeted this, spending $800 an hour to fly the helicopter to tell kids to get out of the pool because we don't have money for lifeguards just sums up America perfectly. Elephant stamp to the Baltimore Police Department. You could have just sensed, someone could have just driven over, couldn't they? At least they don't have helicopter gunships. I don't think. Number two goes to someone on, I'm not sure which social media site this is, uh, but their handle is Sundial, who says, the Jan 6 committee, you know, those ones looking up what happened in the insurrection, the Jan 6 committee is nothing more than Democrats' last desperate attempt to save the midterms and being annihilated by GOP tsunami. Putin would never have invaded Ukraine if Trump was president. Lots of stars. Donald J. Trump was one of our greatest presidents and could be almighty God himself. He came down to earth from heaven to save humanity from Obama's madness and antichrist socialist policies. He is the greatest man that has ever lived past, present and future. Big row of American flags. Trump should be president for life and should be king of America big row of gold crowns, and should be on Mount Rushmore next to Lincoln. America should be renamed Trump Erica in his honour. Fucking hell. Um, yeah, thanks, Sundial. Number three goes to a PR firm, uh, which I shall not name, and I can't link to this on the website because it, came into my email, uh, but the email uh, said that a certain company, uh, they boasted this, it, quote, captures consumers through the full purchase funnel with double-digit uplifts across metrics. I Let me read that again. It captures consumers through the full purchase funnel with double-digit uplifts across metrics. And I, for one, would like to applaud this use of language in in much the same way as I would applaud a three-legged pig trying to dance Swan Lake. So a number of things. Um, What's half a funnel? I I don't know, half the purchase. It's full purchase or whatever, whatever. If I were capturing consumers, I would probably use a net rather than a funnel, although I grant you that I'm no expert. But double-digit uplift. Can I just say that sounds like a sex act involving two fingers? (laughs) Three fingers is even better, right, people? And... Uh, The fourth and final elephant stamp this time goes to, I can't resist myself, I could do a whole podcast just about this woman's commentary, Lauren Boebert, the Republican representative for Colorado's 3rd Congressional District. Uh, This is from earlier in the year at the uh, CPAC uh, conference. Uh, But she suggested this. 
you know, if, if we want to do anything, maybe we liberate our, our neighbors to the north. Um, they certainly are facing a lot of tyranny right now. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Canada is facing so much tyranny and needs to be liberated fr- from from the sovereign government of Canada by America. Freedom! 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 Thank you. As always, uh, if if there's something you've seen which deserves an elephant stamp for excellence in uh, elephant stamp of approval for excellence in the category of thinking, uh, do let me know. One of the most depressing things in the news at the moment for me, for many of my friends is the anti-transgender rhetoric that is kicking around. And that cunt Jordan Peterson, uh, who's apparently an evolutionary psychologist or something, cunt anyway, uh, has been going off about Elliot Page, uh, the transgendered star of uh, the series The Umbrella Academy on Netflix, uh, I, I haven't watched the new series, but uh, previous uh, series of the Umbrella Academy uh, had Elliot Page playing a male character uh, because Elliot Page at the time was identifying as male under a different name, of course. Um, but Jordan Peterson has has expressed revulsion at the idea of, of calling Elliot by his new name. It must be fun at weddings. He also has been dumped from Twitter because of uh, a comment he made about this, and I have linked to a story about it. I won't repeat the comment here. It's just foul. It's just obnoxious. Um, but uh, some of the responses to it have been quite amusing. I mean, it has got to the point where so much of this you you have to respond to it with ridicule. It's it's just insane. This one uh, is from Gretchen Felker-Martin. She has the Twitter handle of Scumbelievable, which I quite like. Uh, She has been described in the Anomaly Journal of Arts and Literature as filthcore queen. Uh, Her debut novel is out. It's called Manhunt. I have no idea what that's about. But she's been posting um, fake Orson Welles sound bites, as if written in the style as if Orson Welles is saying this. Um, I'm going to try reading it. Imagine I'm Orson Welles. What business is it of mine if a young man requires. No, I will not play linguistic games with you. I will not engage in sophistry, sir. Requires the services of an abortion doctor. Last I checked, it bore no cost in blood for the bet middlers of the world. I should say, I bet middlers gone a bit off since last episode. You can look that up for yourself. Perhaps, no, you listen. Perhaps if I placed in the correct context, we will finally ford the raging cataract of your incomprehension. A farmer has a cow. It needs its hooves checked. Later, he 
he buys a horse, which also requires this service. Has the cow disappeared somehow? Has it been banished to some bovine netherverse? Some state of punitive non-being? No, and to state it has is absurd. Sir, were I to concern myself with the disappearance of women, I would look first to what I assume is the last fraying thread of your own domestic situation. Then, of course, we must turn our attention to this, quote, doctor, unquote, Peterson, a lamentable figure, rather Hensonian, One imagines him shambling through the dark crystal or one of that era's other little cinematic oddities croaking plaintively at passing gelflings. Presented as we are with the good doctor's declaration that he would sooner die than speak aloud the name of Mr Elliot Page, a Hollywood actor, one is left with a dilemma. Watch in silence as he expires or throw one's rotten produce at the gangling clown. That, as I say, was from Gretchen Felker Martin. Lovely stuff. While we're on the topic of uh, tolerance v bigotry, uh, a bloke on on Twitter had the handle Sam underscore D underscore 1995 has posted what he believes uh, must be the NIMBY final boss. NIMBY meaning, of course, not in my backyard, for those of you who never across this thing. I don't know where this is from, some forum or somewhere, some local forum. I have no interest living in a neighbourhood with buses, which bring passing non-residents, trains, which are eyesores and can be noisy, or grocery stores and eateries that also attract non-residents to my private development. Unless you personally live in my development or are put on a daily guest list, you will not be allowed past our outer security gates. Having daily necessities within my community would bring in non-residents employees, which is not wanted by anyone living here. (sighs) It's all right, mate. No one wants to spend time with a cunt like you anyway. Uh, I, I wanted to be not quite as shouty this episode. That didn't last long, did it? Some final thoughts. Um, it, it's hard in a podcast like this, which takes you know hours to prepare, uh, to keep up with the news as it unfolds. Uh, quite often, I worry that by the time I record it and edit it and post it and so on, that some of the things I've spoken about will be will be out of date. Um, <laughs> we did that with the Ukraine war, didn't we? The Russian invasion. Um, it's hard to keep up. As I say, at the time of recording, Boris Johnson is still the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. May not be by the time you hear this. Uh, we have, we've had floods again in New South Wales. Um, I'm not quite sure how that's going. I, I mean, past its peak, I think. So I won't talk about that. We've been okay up here in the mountains. Um. But I will finish up with a few things that have been in the news. Uh, how's your Russian? 
Here's a 20-second clip from Russian state TV overnight Australian time. Он давеча обещал уничтожить Российскую Федерацию, уничтожить гегемонию Путина, как он выразился в этой связи. Нам придется подумать, ставить ли нам его опять американским президентом. Тут решение не принято. Exactly. That's quite revealing, isn't it? Uh, for those of you who don't um, understand Russian, including myself, a translation was provided by Julia Davis, who uh, posted that. Uh, the the woman speaking at the beginning is Olga Skabiva, who is a Russian state TV presenter. She says, the other day, Trump promised to destroy the Russian Federation to destroy Putin's hegemony, as he put it. Alexander Kamkin, a political scientist, said, that is excellent. If Trump becomes the president, we will know his geopolitical goals. And then Olga Skabiva said, we'll have to think whether to reinstall him again as the American president. We haven't decided yet. Uh, so that uh, we're, we're taking that to mean, I'm taking that to mean, commentators are taking that to mean, yes, yes, uh, it's it's up to the Russian government to decide whether to install uh, Trump as president of the United States or not. That's reassuring, isn't it? Also reassuring is Christian Porter, the former Attorney General, news uh, today that Christian Porter is acting for Mick Gatto in his High Court appearance over an ABC defamation case. Now, Christian Porter is the former Attorney-General who had his own defamation case against the ABC, but he discontinued it and had legal costs of a million dollars. Now, in completely unrelated events... Mick Gatto, Mick Gatto, rather, one of the Melbourne underworld's key figures, uh, has him as his lawyer. We, we don't, we don't know. Let me stress again: we do not know where Christian Porter got the roughly one million dollars to pay his legal fees. He said it was from a blind trust. He doesn't know where the money came from. Let's let's take that. Uh, well, let's take that as read. I I wish not to upset either of those gentlemen. Also, pass. This is a bit of a mixed bag at the end. Also, passing my uh, my eye uh, this week was something from last year. This is former coalition government minister Christopher Pine talking about the day that uh, then Prime Minister Tony Abbott decided to give a knighthood to Prince Philip. Crackling over the ABC radio came um, that we had knighted Prince Philip. And I thought, oh, fuck. <laughs> I did, actually. I thought, this is going to be a terrible day. <laughs> and I was really happy. And it was about... 7.30, because they haven't, that was the breakfast citizenship. So I'm like, oh, God, no, how dreadful. Because I'm a Republican, of course, so I think the whole knights and dames thing is beyond bizarre. And, and then for Prince Philip to be knighted, I thought, oh, no. Anyway, Rupert Murdoch agreed with me, and Andrew Bolt. So I thought, oh, well, I'm in good company. <laughs> and I sort of went through the day, and actually it was so bad, it was like, 
you know, it was such a terrible thing that people were too embarrassed to even talk about it. You know, so you could tell that it was on the tip of their tongue that they wanted to say, oh no, what's happened now? And you'd think, oh God, yes. Um, but they didn't, because it was like you just discovered that one of your cousins had been arrested for some terrible, scandalous crime, and nobody wants to mention it. So we all pretend that they, you know, it's not in the paper when it clearly is. So it was like that. Bad. <laughs> it was bad. That's Christopher Pine from an event from last year, uh, actually the launch event for the Canberra Writers' Festival 2021, uh, titled Wine with Pine. I haven't listened to any more of it than that. I have linked to the entire recording. Um, He's in conversation with uh, the ABC's Annabelle Crabb. They talk for about an hour. Um, I, I don't think I could handle it. Someone... Someone told me the other day that Christopher Pine's podcast is quite good. I won't leak to it. You can look up, that up for yourself. I There are just some people who – and there's, there's actually some podcasts even in things I report on that I, I just can't listen to because for whatever reason, the presenter's style just just grates with me. Sometimes, you know, I, I don't know. It's irrational. Um, it's very unprofessional of me too. But uh, speaking of someone who is definitely not unprofessional, uh, New Coalition leader Peter Dutton. Yes. Uh, this goes. This actually goes back to the narrative, right, of the Australians setting the agenda. They still want to put in things, as they did on Monday, exclusive. Peter Dutton will target education as a key political battleground, calling for a debate over the curriculum that he says is at risk of being hijacked by unions and activists. And, of course, that's an exclusive, although somehow in crikey, uh, Cam Wilson, friend of the pod, a month ago had written a piece, Peter Dutton is banking on importing US classroom culture wars to Australia. In one of his first interviews as Liberal leader, Dutton said he wants to make the, quote, extremism of teachers a major political issue. I've, I've linked to Cam's piece. Um, I'm not quite sure how that becomes an exclusive to the Australian when, when others reported it a month beforehand, but you can... You can yeah, mumble, mumble, yeah, fuck it. Uh, Osman Chu, who's, uh, well, he's he's from Per Capita, uh, the analyst firm. He's also a member of the Labor Party. He says, imagine thinking attacking teachers is a smart political move after the pandemic where parents got to understand how hard their job actually is. That's a fair question. I think. Uh, The Australian has also reported, uh, I think this is from the previous week, no, the same one, another exclusive by Simon Benson, Dutton decides not to wallow, comma, starts party rebuild. Peter Dutton, he writes, has described the transition to opposition after the election loss as a brutal process and warned against a prolonged post-mortem Hey, don't, let's not bother to see what went wrong. Let's not analyse it. Let's not think. But apparently that process was brutal. Fuck me, he needs to get out more. 
You think someone who was a Queensland cop would know about brutality? Still, Dutton is or is not on holidays. We don't really know. And what I find fascinating, uh, in, a, in a radio spot on the ABC on Wednesday morning, uh, Coalition frontbencher Karen Andrews, uh, she really didn't know either. Um, um, she was responding to uh, Hamish McDonald's question really about, well, you know, uh, Anthony Albanese's been overseas quite a bit and, and the Coalition is saying, oh, oh you know, you criticise Scott Morrison for being in Hawaii on holidays. Well, Albo's, Albo's been to all these places overseas. The opposition has been criticising Anthony Albanese. I, I think the term was circumnavigating the globe. Those were Angus Taylor's words. Uh, he's been off, obviously, at a number of summits and meetings. Are, are you critical of him for doing that? Well, I my view is that it was it was important for Australia's Prime Minister to be overseas at a number of um, the uh, events and meetings that he attended. I think it was very important for the Foreign Minister to be in the Pacific region. But now's the time to be at home. There are there's significant flooding happening in New South Wales. I'm in Queensland at the moment, and it's been raining here for quite some time. People are going to be uh, affected here very soon. So, yep, done, done. Now, Prime Minister, you need to be in Australia, and you need to demonstrate your support for the Australian people. Is Peter Dutton at work at the moment? I haven't spoken to um, Peter this week, so I, I, I honestly can't answer that uh, for you. I'm not aware that he's not here. Is he on leave? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't speak to uh, Peter every day. I mean, I've heard reporting that he's on leave, but I, I haven't checked. I've actually just focused on my own job. It's a bit much, though, to criticise the PM for doing this when the opposition leader's on leave, isn't it? Well, I'm not criticising Anthony Albanese at all. Uh, uh, what I just said is that it was important for Australia's Prime Minister to be overseas, and I also commented favourably on the Foreign Minister being in the Pacific region, but I also said now's the time to be home. Karen Andrews, appreciate your time as always. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Take care. You too, Karen. Let me remind you that Karen Andrews was, until just a few little weeks ago, Australia's Minister for Home Affairs. Today, she doesn't even know who her boss is this week. She hasn't spoken to him. Just doing her own little thing, concentrating on her own job. <laughs> oh, dear. On that positive note, <laughs> thank you for your attention. That's all the edict for now. You'll be pleased to hear. If you would like, I would like you to go to the 9pmedict.com slash tip and throw in a few dollars. Please do that. The next episode uh, will be in just a couple of days with uh, Claire Connolly. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.